Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Today's episode is focused on one of our research priorities, and that's what is it about cancer that allows it to grow and spread? Today, we're going to be talking about the effects of pressure on cancer. What is it about pressure? How, how do cancer cells adapt to this high-pressure environment? How do pancreatic cancer cells specifically adapt to survive under pressure? Well, our guest today does a fantastic job of explaining why pressure matters. Dr. Liam Holt is our guest. He is an associate professor at the NYU School of Medicine, New York City. Um, and I also want to mention he has a very cool... I don't know if side project is the right word, but it's an educational outreach initiative that he co-founded. It's called Science Sketches. Go to sciencesketches.org when you've got a chance and check out these. They're like two-minute videos that just do this through animation, um, do this incredible job of explaining uh, scientific concepts in a way that anybody can understand. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation with Dr. Liam Holt. So, Dr. Holt, thanks for joining us. And I got to tell you, this is um, this is a new one for me. I don't know. Maybe for you, compression and crowding of cells is just uh, run-of-the-mill, everyday stuff. But for me, this this one really stood out to me. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you study, the effects of compression and crowding on cells. And I guess before we get to, to how that relates to cancer, Let's, let's start with normal cells. Like for a normal cell, why does pressure matter? Yeah, so pressure is something that is uh, felt by normal cells all the time. And there are familiar examples. I think that if I mention them, people will start to you know understand. So one example would be your bone cells. If you don't periodically apply stress and compress your bone cells, your, your bones, then you start to lose bone density. So, you know, when astronauts go to space with uh, microgravity or no gravity, they lose bone density. And the way that you can pre prevent that is with good nutrition, but also they, they do a lot of resistance exercise. And so it's not just because they're trying to build up their muscle, it's also because they're trying to compress their cells. And that leads to the bone stem cells from, uh, it causes them to differentiate and, and produce new bone. So that's one example at the sort of human scale that we're all familiar with. And as we zoom in to all types of tissues, then you know, tissues tend to be built and maintained by these cells called stem cells. And stem cells are these slightly magical cells that are able to uh, wake up when they're needed and divide and divide and create, you know, new cells to repair ones that have been lost or damaged. And many of these stem cells that have been studied in isolation seem to respond to compression. There are certain types of stem cell that can choose to be different types of ultimate cell. So, for example, they could become fat cells or they could become bone cells. And whether or not you can whether or not you physically compress or stretch these cells influences that decision. So that's kind of interesting. And but the details of exactly how this works are pretty poorly understood. So that's something we're really interested in. And I think it's going to relate to the cancer biology later. 
And even the very earliest stages of making an embryo, um, you start from a single cell and then it divides and it divides and it divides and you've got 16 cells in what's called a, a blastocyst. It's just a ball of cells. But then the next thing that happens is that a sort of fluid balloon starts to inflate inside that very small cluster of cells. And this now is called the marula. And this fluid-filled cavity, uh, this fluid-filled cavity expands and it compresses the stem cells that are inside that early embryo. And this causes some of the very early, very first specialization of human cells from what we call totipotent cells, cells that can become anything to different lineages of, of stem cells. So, you know, from the earliest embryo through to astronauts, we can find really good examples of how cells are responding to their mechanical environment to make sure that they do just the right thing. Wow, that's pretty good intro. From fluid balloons to outer space. Yeah. Compression <laughs> matters. That's pretty neat. And you're talking about how, I mean, not a scientist here, but I mean, I've heard how, you know, stem cells at a certain point could become this kind of cell or that kind of cell. And you're telling me that compression can play a part into... Right. So that seems to be the case. And again, there's so much to be learned about that. It's very limited, you know, our knowledge of how that works. And so that's an exciting area to study. Well, so let's let's turn it to cancer then. You've talked about how pressure matters for normal cells, bone cells, or even like in an embryo, which is, that's going to blow my mind for the rest of the conversation. I'm going to have to let that part of my mind sit over here and just explode while we turn back to cancer. Um, okay, so a tumor starts to grow inside your body, where before there was no tumor, now there's a tumor. How is that affecting the nearby cells, the normal cells that are near where this tumor is developing? Yeah, so this is kind of mysterious. Um, the very early stages of going from a few rogue cells that are inappropriately proliferating to a, to a tumor. We know certainly that as you get towards a larger tumor, they have very different mechanical properties and that there is pressure building up. Um, what I still don't know is how early those changes in, in compression might start. Like at what stage of tumor growth do they become relevant? And that's a really interesting question that uh, we, we need to start to get into. But I can sort of describe uh, in um, some of the things that do happen um, at various times of tumor growth. So, you know, it's not just that you have the cancer cells. I think th that's really good that you, you point that out, that it's the, the tumor is both uh, with these rogue cancer cells, but also it's these, these uh, tumor cells are in influencing the surrounding normal cells and they start to do strange things that um, will then change the local environment. The, 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 the normal cells start doing strange things? The normal cells start to do strange things. So for example, I think that the, the, the cancer cells are releasing messages that there are these signaling molecules, um, for example, that can cause inflammation locally in the environment. And that can cause the normal cells to rush in and start to respond to the initiation of cancer as if it's like a wound, for example. And this is not necessarily helpful in the context of, of the tumor. Uh, so if you were to have a 
scratch on your skin, then that's inflammatory, and you you know what that looks like. Your skin becomes, you know, underneath the skin becomes red, and that um, it becomes inflamed, and you'll have fluids build up there and scabs forming. And when all of that resolves at the end of the day, uh, the, the tissue that your scar is uh, is different. You know, you, you find a scar in your body and, and poke at it a little bit, you'll notice that it doesn't feel like the surrounding tissue. And that's because of reorganization of the um, tissue. And the t- tissue is made of cells, but they're embedded in what's called an extracellular matrix. And this is fibrous material. There's like these long fibrous strands that are woven together in a web. And this uh, matrix is usually very carefully constructed and it has precise properties such that, you know, if you squeeze your um, skin, it relaxes back into its original shape. And it's got these, you know, wonderful elastic and um, tough and, um, you know, the, the difference between young skin and aged skin is that the quality of that extracellular matrix uh, is much, much more amenable to being you know, elastic in, in the younger individuals. And if you start to scar that tissue, then the extracellular matrix becomes disorganized, it becomes stiffer. Um, it becomes fibrotic, and you you get this uh, more challenging environment for cells to live within. So what you see if you look at a tumor, if you take a um, histology section and you look at it under a slide, is you see these little nests of tumor cells, but they're embedded inside these web-like structures. And those web-like structures are this disorganized extracellular matrix and is put in place by things like inflammatory cells, like macrophages, um, and you know, stellate cells. That these these are normal cells surrounding the the tumor that are coming in and almost responding to it like it's a, a damaged piece of tissue and making it fibrotic. So you're kind of describing um, this environment consisting of the tumor inside the extracellular matrix, and we've been talking about kind of generic tumors, but let's get specific. Your lab studies pancreatic cancer, right? And I saw on your lab page, you note that pancreatic cancer builds up the most pressure of, of I think you said, of any tumor type. Is that right? Right. So, so I guess with that in mind, what does it mean to say that it builds up the most pressure of any tumor type? And, and why does that matter? It's simply been experimentally found that there's a lot of what let's let's call it compressive stress, so pressure um, inside pancreatic tumors. And, and the way this experiment was done, so there's some really nice work from a professor called Rakesh Jain. And uh, what his group did was to take out different types of tumor. And so if you were to take a normal piece of tissue out, and you were to cut it with a razor blade, you would find that it's the same thing as you know slicing into a piece of steak. It, it kind of just has a slice in it and it's, it doesn't do anything dramatic. If you do the same thing to a tumor that's been recently removed from the body, 
you take that razor blade and you slice into that ball of tumor, what you find is that the tumor springs open. Um, so very different from slicing into that steak. It's, uh, and that, that springing open is the release of solid compressive stress. So it means that the pressure of the surrounding cells of the tumor are pushing in. And then when you make that incision, when you cut that material, the compressive stress is released and the shape of the tumor then responds and you get this opening up. Um, and the, and the, by doing that really, really simple experiment, they could just see, well, how much does this uh, slice spring open? And that's proportional to the amount of compressive stress that's stored inside those tumors. So they did this with a whole bunch of different tumor types and they found that the pancreatic tumors were particularly extreme in the amount of compressive stress that was stored inside of them. So that was how it was determined. So it, it didn't necessarily intuitively, you wouldn't think right off the top of your head, oh, well, pancreatic cancers, it's obvious that those must be the ones with the most pressure. And yet that experiment suggested that this was the case. So why might pancreatic tumors have a lot of compressive stress? Um, so one of the reasons seems to be that they become very fibrotic. So if you remember, I was just explaining how if you get a scar, it's because that ECM is being rearranged and this, uh, this extracellular matrix and various different molecules being laid down to respond to this acute wound to allow you to repair your tissue quickly, but at the cost that it creates a mechanically perturbed scar. Well, it seems that same kind of process of fibrosis is very active in, in the pancreatic environment. If you have some kind of injury that's sensed in the pancreas, and, and it could just be that there's some kind of inflammation that's coming from uh, lots of different possible origins. It could be from alcohol, it could be from some hereditary condition, um, but it seems that these kind of infl inflammatory events happen quite a lot in the pancreas, and that causes the cells to think that it's a wound and they convert into these myofibroblasts. There's a different type of cell that lays down a lot of extracellular matrix and they make the environment very stiff. So you get this very stiffened tissue. And now when you have tumor cells and one of the characteristics of cancer cells is that they continue to grow even though they have run out of space. So that you're now essentially, if you remember back to you know, the early embryogenesis where this fluid-filled cavity is, you know, pumping up like a balloon, the cells now are sort of taking on that role. The cells are dividing inside a confined space, and it's a stiff confined space, and there's nowhere really to go except to deform the surrounding environment. So, you know, if you try and pump air into a balloon, then that elastic shell is going to push back, and depending on how stiff that elastic shell is, you'll get different amounts of compressive stress versus distortion. So there's just something about the balance of the, the responsive cells to local inflammation and wounding um, and the way that they respond to that that tends to cause pancreatic tumors to become very fibrotic, very stiff.
have a lot of pressure. So I'm imagining this ball of stress, this high pressure environment. If we gain a better, better understanding of it and how pressure is impacting the tumor, what's the um, aspiration here? Is it is it that we could help uh, prevent it from forming? Is there a therapeutic potential here that you're excited about? Yes. So we've been doing a lot of work over the last um, couple of years and with help from the American Cancer Society, trying to make really simple models. And by models, what I mean is we take just a single cell type, like a, a relatively normal... <laughs> that Can you hear that? That's the, the ferry. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> You're driving the ferry right now, too. Right, right exactly. Yes, yeah. so I have to occasionally turn the wheel and avoid one of those. <laughs> so let's see. So what I mean by model is that there is a simple pancreatic cell that we took from a, a normal individual. The, the cell is not cancerous. And we've been slowly introducing the typical cancer mutations that cause pancreatic cancer. So starting with KRAS mutation and then P53 deletion. So, you know, the cancer molecular biologists will understand that these are the two most commonly mutated genes in cancer, pancreatic cancer. And so we've been taking cells that have, you know, these mutations in them and putting them into precisely controlled compressive environments where we, we apply a known amount of compression. And initially, when the cells are normal, they do very poorly growing in those compressed environments. Then when we add the cancer mutations, we thought that they would do better with the cancer mutations. That was our original hypothesis. But actually, what we found was not that. Actually, what we found in the initial experiments was that the KRAS mutation actually made cells in some aspects do worse. And what I mean by that is that when they started to try and divide and separate their genomes into two new cells, what we found is that they were making a lot more mistakes when they had this combination of compression and the oncogene, the KRAS cancer gene being turned on. And so what we've been finding is that these cells are undergoing this process of um, hypermutation, it seems. They're really changing their genome quickly. And this creates a diversity in the cancer cell population. And so what we think about when we think about how cancers develop as they become worse and worse and worse, it's directly analogous to the normal process of evolution. So what's happening is that the cells are becoming um, diversified by the stress of compressive, you know, the pressure that we're putting on them. And some of the cells are getting mutations that allow them to better survive. So we've developed a technique to keep these cells growing for a month or so under compression. And what we find is that the cells at the beginning of the experiment are really struggling. And when we get the cells at the end of the experiment, they seem to have evolved to become resistant to compression. And if we look at the kinds of changes, and this is early days, this is um, a lot of genome sequencing we're doing now. But if, when we start to look at the changes that have happened to the genome 
some of them look similar to some of the things that you see in cells that you isolate from pancreatic cancer patients. So we're excited about this because there's an evolution that's happened in the cancer cells um, that has allowed them to grow under compressive stress. That seems to be, from a you know simple experimental paradigm, it seems to be relevant to what's also happening in patients. So now you start to understand that the cancer cell in the patient is not the same as the regular patient cell. And it's done something strange to its genome to allow it to survive under compression. Now, if we can figure out exactly what's going on there, what is the mechanism that allows the cell to grow in this compressed state, maybe that would be something that we could develop a drug against, such that you add this drug and it is only going to um, preferentially kill off cells that are in a weird compressed state without causing so much damage to your regular cells. Uh, and this is always the big challenge of, of cancer therapy is that cancer cells are your own cells. And so you have to find something that differentiates the cancer cell from the normal cell so that you can make a drug that kills the cancer cell without making the patient extremely sick. So of course, any cancer survivor who has gone through like regular chemotherapy understands how sick that makes you. If you can find something that's very different about the cancer cells, and you can target that specifically, then you can make far more effective cancer therapies. So our hope is that by understanding the evolutionary events that we're creating in the lab and figuring out how they allow cells to adapt to compression, this will allow us to discover new cancer therapy targets. Would it be correct to say that like the high pressure environment is like um, driving the diversity of cancer cells, that it needs this high pressure environment in order to evolve and become nor more diverse and more problematic and cancerous? Yes, that's precisely correct. So this is something that all types of cancer do. They, the, the, genome, the genetic material, the instruction book that determines how cells behave and how they, what they can do, um, which is often quite restricted for a given cell type, uh, that book gets ripped apart and shuffled around and new chapters are juxtaposed or the precise meaning of each you know, page might be changed a little bit. And so this, you know, instruction manual for the cell is being messed up in various different ways. And people have understood this for a long time, that this rewriting of the genome to cause cells to do inappropriate things is a fundamental aspect of cancer biology. This evolution of cells is what drives cancer and what makes it very difficult to treat a lot of the time because you know, you apply some kind of treatment and the cell evolves to become resistant to the treatment. So people have understood that things like smoking will create mutations in your genome, which means that in those book of instructions within your cell, the words are being changed. And occasionally that creates an obscene sentence that causes the cells to do something cancerous. Um, so people un have understood this for various different chemical stresses, for example, um, 
but it, what's really exciting is that we're finding this for a mechanical stress. And I think one thing that's really interesting is that the mechanical pressure not only generates diversity, but it also becomes the thing that the cell has to adapt to. Um, and that's different from cigarette smoke. You know, I, I don't think it's the case that cancer cells adapt in lung cancer, for example, to become, you know, adapted to be around cigarette smoke. It's just a, a mutagen and then they do something different. But in, in our case, what we're finding is that the mechanical compression allows the cells to evolve to survive in the context of mechanical compression. So um, there's an interesting coupling of the selective pressure and the generation of gen genomic diversity. But I'm getting a little bit into, yeah. No, no, it's really interesting how this high pressure environment just sort of supercharges it. And mm -hmm. you, you think there's some potential to target it therapeutically so that instead of just targeting all the healthy cells and sick cells, no, we don't want to do that. We just want to, we just want to get the cancer cells. And you think we might be able to target those cells that are thriving in this high pressure environment, which in other words are the cancer cells. That's the hope. I mean, it's always very difficult to truly get a hundred percent specific cancer mm -hmm. targeted drugs, but, um, you know, the, your chances of developing something that is cancer specific are improved if there, if you d identify something that's strange about the cancer cell and this mechanical adaptation is a strange thing. They do seem to be operating quite differently from a normal cell. So we don't know what the targets are yet. Right. We know how it works. And that's the next big challenge. Um, but I do think that there is some hope there that we will find something really interesting to go after. So this is kind of a new and emerging sort of field of study, right? And if that's true, when you're driving your ferry and you're daydreaming <laughs> about your research and thinking about kind of possible new avenues, what is it that really gets you most excited these days? Is there one, is there, is there something? I spend a lot of time talking with people, watching what other people are doing, listening to talks, um, you know, podcasts, what have you, getting a sense of what's going on in the wider scientific world. And I often get really excited when some new technique or technology becomes uh, reported and then suddenly I can see new potentials. You know, it's, for example, when it becomes cheap enough to sequence a human genome um, or a hundred human genomes uh, for, a, for a lab like mine on the kind of funding that we can supply, um, then the idea of being able to figure out how cancer evolution works in, a, in this specific context, it becomes possible, right? The, as new technology is developed or as things get cheaper, we can do experiments that seemed just a few years ago to be inaccessible or impossible. And so that's, that's often when I get most excited. So that would be one thing. I guess the other thing is that, again, going back to just listening to lots of people, having lots of random conversations, in the moment, I don't necessarily have any inspiration, but then days or months later, suddenly an idea crystallizes out of nowhere seemingly, uh, and 
you can usually tell if it's a good idea because it seems super obvious. <laughs> There's this paradox where I, what a I think a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, if you have an idea and it's like, wow, this is a good idea, but it seems really complicated. It turns out to be a terrible idea. But when you, when you have this idea and you're like, hold on a second, is this even an idea? Right. <laughs> this is so obvious. Then oftentimes that's when you've stumbled across something that's really worth going after. Uh, and it's funny that, you know, where does all of this uh, inspiration come from? It's just your subconscious is working at stuff for, and, and it just pops out. And, and that's really inspiring when that happens. Man, Liam, I got to tell you, I can really see why the other thing I wanted to talk with you about today has been so successful because you're really good at explaining these complex scientific concepts. And so I wanted to talk to you about this educational outreach that you do. You've got this cool initiative you launched uh, called Science Sketches. So what is that? Can you, can you talk a bit about what it is and what your hopes are for it? Right. So I guess it's almost five years ago. So I, I was saying that I'm up here at the Marine Biology Labs in Woods Hole, which is where I come to do some collaborative research. And so there's a strange thing, you know, five, over the years I've done various public outreach talks. And um, what I realized in doing them is that scientists have this huge vocabulary of science specific words that we don't always understand that they are specific to scientists. And communication can often break down as a result. So for example, I was trying to explain in a five minute talk some of the research that we were doing, um, and I was talking about proteins. And my friend, who I was testing out the script on and te you know testing the talk on, she said, "Well, I don't understand what you're talking about with proteins. Isn't that just you know nutrition? I don't get it." And she didn't understand this concept that proteins are this incredible diversity of molecular ma machines. That there are hundreds of thousands of types of proteins. They have specific shapes. They do incredibly complex things um, like detect light, or um, you know, they're, they're the enzymes that uh, chew up sugar or chew up starch and make sugar, that kind of thing. So this this concept uh, was a disconnect, and then when you start thinking about it, you realize that there are many many concepts like this. And so I was inspired to try and create a video archive of uh, short. Um, explanatory videos to get people up to speed, to help educate the public, to help scientists communicate. And, and, and the videos aren't really like talking heads. It's more like animations and right. things like that, right? Right. So I was thinking about what some different formats could be. Um, so that the one half of it was, you know, how do we um, create two-minute videos? Or like what's the, the right kind of format for that? The other side to it was that there, there are actually quite a few different organizations that are fantastic that make science education materials. And so what would we do that would be different uh, and that would you know, get at the problem in a slightly disruptive way, hopefully, eventually? And the other side of things is that scientists do want to get involved in this kind of outreach. And, but yet, they don't always have obvious ways of doing so. And so, and the number of videos that we thought we might need to make to be able to have essentially a video Wikipedia that people could just easily 
find any term that they didn't understand. Like, what is DNA? What is RNA? What's a protein? What is a cell? Um, what's an embryo? How does that work? Um, if, if we wanted to make all those, those videos, then it would be thousands of videos. So although there are really great educational production organizations that, that do exist, they tend to be pretty small operations and it's difficult for them to make a ton of material. And so what we thought was, well, how about we figure out how to crowdsource this? Can we find a, a recipe to make these videos that would be accessible to any scientist or high school or college student who is interested in being involved in this project, that anyone could do it as long as they just had a cell phone and a computer. And so I worked with my friend Lisa Dennison, who'd already kind of been working on this concept in a different context. And she happened to be coming to the marine biology labs that same summer as me. And so we teamed up and we, we founded Science Sketches together. Uh, and so that's what, what we've been doing. So we've, over the years, we've been doing workshops where we teach people how to make the videos and refining the process to make it easier and easier. So our ultimate goal is to create these stepping stones from the everyday vocabulary that everyone can understand to whatever kind of area of science, there's science words that might otherwise be an obstacle to understanding what it is that we do um, and to create you know, this possibility of, of stepping into the world of science for anyone. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Holt, you're an American Cancer Society funded grantee, and I know that our volunteers, our donors would love to know what kind of impact uh, ACS funding had on your research. Uh, it's been amazingly helpful and um, necessary to be able to do the things that I described just just now. You know, as I was saying, um, it takes time to be able to figure out how to ask these questions. Um, I think I, I'm really grateful that the American Cancer Society took the chance to fund research that some other people might have thought was a bit too risky. Um, and so now we've got these great, you know, compression evolution results uh, that we didn't expect. Um, we've had enough money to be able to, you know, do genome sequencing and these expensive experiments that you need to have a good solid amount of funding to be able to ask those questions. Um, so, you know, it's been absolutely critical to have that support to be able to make progress on this front. So I wanted to give the last word to cancer patients and survivors and caregivers in a way. So is there a message that you'd like to share with, with that audience in particular? Absolutely. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's always a terrifying thing um, to deal with those, uh, to deal with cancer. And, um, and yet, I think right now is a, an amazing time for science, and it brings hope in areas where there hasn't been a huge uh, amount of, of hope in the past. So we're really excited that we might be able to make some, I mean, one of the reasons that we chose to work on pancreatic cancer is that it's been very, very difficult to treat. And so the fact that we're finding new aspects of the biology of this cancer and new ways of thinking about what, you know, types of therapy we could consider 
um, that's happening everywhere. Uh, there's all kinds of creative people that are coming together um, from disparate fields. They're converging. They're starting to synergize. And every year I hear about new therapies that are really moving the needle, uh, making the probability of getting um, longer and more effective survival. Um, it seems like you know this is this is a good time for hope. It's a good time for hope. That's a great way to end it. And um, I know from your research, you know that like pressure and stress just leads to this flourishing diversity of terrible things. So I hope you have a nice low pressure carefree existence outside the lab and that it's a good summer for you and that um we've had a long year the last year so i hope the coming year is delightful for you thanks very much yeah i really i appreciate your time and the great questions and uh, thank you again to the american cancer society for making this possible <laughs>